Several years ago, my parents had a really great idea. You know, we had been receiving gifts for many, many years. They decided that that year we were going to do something different. Through World Vision, we were actually going to give gifts rather than receive them. Now, I was an adult, and my children were young, so it wasn't a problem for me. And my kids were young enough to where they thought, well, this is kind of a neat idea. And so through World Vision, I believe we provided some goats, um, a tree for some folks in Africa so they could better provide for their families. In fact, one of my children, Susanna, got so excited about the idea that she suggested that we take some of Grandma's cats and send them over <laughs> as well, just to be a little bit extra helpful. Well, this year, my parents have had the same idea. And so rather than giving Christmas gifts to, to myself and the children, they're going to do the same thing, you know, give through World Vision. Well, this year, and I'm not going to say which one of my children it was, um, one of my children said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take the money we would spend on, on Garney and Grandpa, and we're going to give it to World Vision to get revenge on them. <laughs> so needless to say, I think as, as we get a little bit older, it's real easy to start to maybe miss the point just a little bit about Christmas. So how can we take steps to keep the main thing the main thing? this Christmas. You know, needless to say, whether you're young or whether you're old, it's going to be very easy to get distracted this Christmas season, right? Isn't it easy to get distracted? As our pants get tighter, as our wallets get lighter, and our calendars are overflowing with abundance of opportunities, it's going to be difficult to stay focused on the reason for the season. So how can we take steps to focus on the main thing this Christmas? You know, I believe one important step is to break Christmas down to its most basic parts so that we can understand what it is and what it's not. And so in order for this to happen, we're going to have to go beyond Scrooge. We're going to have to go beyond Frosty. We're going to have to go beyond Ralphie. Does anybody still know that movie? <laughs> now, I was criticized for making references that my children don't understand, but at least most of y'all in here get that. Did you get that, Z? You're going to have to go beyond Ralphie and go beyond St. Nick in order to get to the true meaning of Christmas. And so that's going to be the purpose of our journey for the next several weeks. This week we're going to begin by illustrating how Christmas is the solution to a problem that began in the Garden of Eden. Two weeks from now, because next week we're having a guest speaker, we will discuss how the forces of evil have been intent on thwarting God's plan to resolve the problem originated in week one. And finally, on Christmas morning, we're going to discuss the essential ingredient to any story worth telling. People. We're going to talk about how God allows people to both shape and be shaped by the story that he himself is authoring. But first, we're going to start where it all started, back in Genesis chapter 3. And so the first point this morning is that the problem originated with Adam. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Now at this point in history, what, have been, what would have been man's attitude towards God? You know, look at all that God had provided for man. He's in the Garden of Eden. Everything is exactly as, it, as God intended. But nevertheless, in Genesis 3, man faces a dilemma. The first woman, Eve, communicates with a being that calls into question God's character and contradicts what God has said. And she's faced with a choice. Who do I trust? So beginning with me here in chapter 3. 
you know, I just want to say that the earth was uncorrupted. Man's relationship with God was as it was intended. It was pure intimacy. They walked daily in the garden. Now, do you remember what things were like with your spouse before you had that first big argument? You know, you remember when you were dating and everything was exactly the way that you pictured it, the way that you saw in the Disney movies, and then you had that first argument. Or what about when your children had never even considered what it would be like to talk back? Remember that? And then the first time they do it, it's like, who is this person that's in my house? Or what about that first time when you started work, that first week, and everything was rosy, and you had confidence in your boss, and then you start hearing your colleagues, the little whispering around the water cooler, kind of poking holes in their credibility. At this point, the relationship between man and God was a joy to both parties. You know, man lived in simple dependence on God. And God provided for their needs and affirmed them with his daily presence and companionship. It was exactly as God intended. At this point, they had no reason whatsoever to doubt God's goodness. But then the thought had never occurred to them either. And so the second thought is everything was as God intended. And I think that tells us a lot about the God that we serve. Is the way that things were before the problem came about. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now is that what God said? Absolutely not. The serpent immediately is beginning to try to confuse Adam and Eve by saying something that God did not say. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. So the woman responds, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, is that what God said? No. He said don't eat it. But look at what's happened. This is the first time that God has ever been scrutinized. That there's ever been an attempt to cause man to doubt God. And man's already confused. He's added a restriction. Now when somebody in our lives is unnecessarily strict. Does that cause us to want to trust them? And so we see that already the serpent's plan is effective. Eve's confused. God is stricter in her eyes than he actually is. Verse 4. So he goes for the jugular now. He contradicts what God said. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent contradicts what God has said. He says God does not want man to be equal to himself. And the implication is that God cannot be trusted. You know, this God who seems all nice and good, who's with you every day, who's done nothing to cause you to doubt him, he has a reason. He has a motive, an ulterior motive. He's trying to control you, to restrict you, and he can't be trusted. And so thirdly, they were tempted to doubt God's goodness. You know, though they had no reason, they had no good reason to doubt God, but they had no experience with evil. And that was intentional. God had protected them from even knowing what evil was. But because they had no experience with evil, you know, they were vulnerable to it. And they were more than a little bit naive. 
So with that in mind, I would say, look at what the, the serpent does not suggest. So it says he's crafty, he's cunning. So why did he not suggest some of these things? You know, he said to Adam or Eve, why don't you just pick out one of the animals and hurt it? Poke it with a stick. Make it upset. Why does he not just say, hey, you know, Adam or Eve, why don't you just injure your spouse? Just, you know, just sock them one. Make them hurt. Or why don't you just curse God? I'll tell you why he didn't suggest that, because they would have figured out what kind of, what kind of creature he was. He has to be a lot more crafty than that. He has to be a lot more subtle. So what does he do? With cunning, he presents a command designed to protect. A command designed to preserve their innocence as a sinister attempt to control them and restrict them. And this gets you and I every time, doesn't it? We're tempted to believe that someone in a position of authority, somebody who's a rule maker, is not looking out for us. They're looking out for themselves. In Chick-fil-A, in college, I worked at Chick-fil-A on the weekends. And the boss there, he's a pretty good guy. He was, his name was David. He couldn't have been that bad. Um, so he was the boss. And I thought he was an okay fella. And we went to actually the Chick-fil-A ranch and rode on a hayride. And he shared a devotional thought. But as the weekends went by, I had colleagues begin to say things. And I wasn't really seeking it out. I wasn't even really listening. But they were saying things like, you know, his parents are well off. He, he didn't really deserve the position. You know, I, I think this guy's kind of fake. and You know, he's, he's not really, a, he looks like a good guy, but he's really not. And I was innocent of the whole matter, but I couldn't help but be affected by it. And then I began to be a little bit suspicious. And I had no reason to doubt the guy, but I did. And I think that's what's happening. And at this point in the story, I wonder why Adam and Eve didn't just clear the whole thing up. You know, they could have waited for God to come on his daily rounds. And then said, hey, the, God, the serpent's saying this, these things. What's true? And I can imagine that God might have backhanded the serpent, you know, and pulverized him. That would have been a cool ending to the story. But that's not what happened. Because the sly serpent has already successfully planted doubt in their hearts about a God whose behavior toward them at this point should have left no doubts. They've begun to distance themselves from God and pursue independence from a God with nothing but their best interest at heart. And that, and the, the, the amazing thing about the story here is not that it happened, but that it still happens. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye... And also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. So it wasn't just about food. It was about throwing off the bounds of control and being like God. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So Adam and Eve disobey God. They make coverings for themselves. It's interesting. You know, just like a child very naturally tries to cover over a mistake, Adam and Eve do their best to try to amend the situation. You know, when I was in second grade, many, many moons ago, I uh, got in trouble at school. I don't even remember what it was for, but the teacher made me write a note. I had to write my own note to my mom. And so I took it home. Well, actually, I didn't take it home. I put it at my desk. 
and I presented it to the teacher the next day, and that the, the scrawled signature looked suspiciously like the handwritten note. And my teacher, being savvy, figured out what was going on. Um, so I had to write another note. So, you know, in that situation, do you think the fact that I tried to cover up what I had done made the situation better, or did it make it worse? And that's what's happening here. Adam and Eve, they realize, uh-oh, I shouldn't be like this. I've got to cover myself. And so they grab whatever they can find and sew it together and make a garment to try to cover up what has occurred. And the key point is here, the makeshift covering they have provided for themselves is not enough. And we'll see why in just a few moments. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Also, we can identify with this. When you're in trouble, what do you do? As a child, you hide. Parents got to come find you. So that's what's happening. They're afraid. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So God seeks out Adam and Eve. And their answer to his question gives away what has happened. This so often happens with us. And this is the first time that shame is recorded in the Bible. And I just want to say to you today that the shame that you and I experience so often, you know, when you do something that can't be undone, when you say something you can't take back, that's not what God intended. He never intended for us to experience that. And so when Adam and Eve choose to make an independent choice, and to ignore God's instruction. This is what they've introduced into the world. But that's not the way that our loving Father intended it. Verse 12. There's a bit of a comical exchange here. Verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So what does Adam do immediately? Not my fault. <laughs> it's, it's her fault. It's, it's that woman. Not even, he's not saying my wife, but that woman that you put here, it's her fault. And then verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, no, it wasn't me, God, it was the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I hate it. So the blame game is the first episode ever in, in, in man's recorded history. And we've all done this many, many times. Verse 14, here's the consequences. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So he's saying to the serpent, you're cursed. There's a physical curse. You're going to crawl on your belly. It's going to be unpleasant for you. Apparently at that point the serpent had, had appendages. I mean, I've never seen a snake like that, but you know that apparently is what happened. And, but the more interesting part is this prophetic curse in verse 15. And at first glance, it's easy to miss what it's saying. He talks about enmity or, you know, tension between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. There's quite a bit of agreement. This is referring to Jesus. And so even here in the midst of tragedy, when man has broken of his own choice the relationship with God, we see that God is not caught off He's not surprised. He's not in shock. 
God already has a plan of something that he's going to do in the future. And it's going to involve the serpent harming the woman's offspring, which is Jesus. But then ultimately, the woman's offspring will triumph and will deal a decisive death blow to the enemy. And so God's saying, hey, you've tangled, you've grabbed the tiger by the tail here, serpent. You've messed with me. And even the fact that he's able to give, to pronounce a curse on the serpent shows where he's at in the hierarchy. And this is where I would submit to you today, this is where Christmas <coughs> begins. Man has caused a problem to which he has no solution. It doesn't begin in a stable with new parents, shepherds, and wise men. Christmas began with God devising a plan to solve a problem he did not cause. And Jesus would be God's intended solution to this problem of sin and its consequences. And in two weeks, we're going to see how proactive and comprehensive the enemy's attempts were throughout Israel's history to try to thwart this plan. But this is where Christmas begins. Verse 16. So Cain, sorry, jumped ahead. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So this is Eve's consequence. Increased pain in childbearing. And this is also easy to overlook. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You kind of get the picture of June and Ward Cleaver, right? And she's just doting on her husband. I don't think that's what the scripture's saying here. It's saying that there's going to be tension between the husband and the wife over who calls the shots. And I know that doesn't happen today in any of our homes, especially not mine. But it's, it's a prophetic curse that there's going to be tension between man and wife about who calls the shots. And there certainly is today. Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So those are Adam's consequences. Hard physical labor. The ground is not going to cooperate. We've had a pretty uncooperative ground this year, haven't we? Agricultural folks. It's been tough. And so they, their choice had consequences, Right? Their choice not to trust God, to go their own way. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. And that was certainly the case here. So their choice had consequences that we still feel today. There's a lot of problems in our world, in our own lives, that were caused by that choice that day. But I don't know that any of us would have chosen differently if we were in their shoes. Verse 20, just a couple more verses here this morning. Adam named his wife Eve because she had become the mother of all the living. And, and this next verse to me is the most interesting verse. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It's easy to overlook why this is significant. What would have had to happen in order for God himself to provide the skins? Something had to die, right? And so when they screwed up and they went and grabbed whatever they could find to cover up, it wasn't good enough. 
It wasn't sufficient. And there's not a lot of commentary here, but God provided skins. And it doesn't say he created them out of nothing. Something had to die in order for God to provide a covering that would be appropriate for what had occurred. And so this morning we learned some important things about God. Because every story, particularly in the Old Testament, is fun. Because we just want to ask ourselves the question, what do we learn about God in the story? Because he's the main character. Firstly, is that God is perfect. He cannot be associated with sin. And so when man breaks the relationship and chooses to disobey God, there's separation. God is perfect. He can't, he can't be around it. And because man is now a sinner, he's going to have to leave God's presence and be banished from the garden of Eden. So God is perfect and holy. Next is that God is just. He always punishes sin. And we love justice when it's for the other guy. But it's tough for us to accept when we need justice. But God is just. He always punishes sin. And because he is a just God, death is required as payment for sin. But the encouraging part is that God is also loving. He's perfect, he's just, but he's also loving. He knows and sees that man is helpless to save himself. And in this story, we see that the covering that man endeavors to provide for himself is not enough. And so even though death is required as payment for sin, God himself provides payment. And so, lastly, God had a plan, even then, to deal decisively with this problem. And these principles would come into play that God's character does not allow him to compromise. And these are also reasons we can trust him. God's character, he does not lower the standard. God has a standard. He has a way that's best for us to live. It's best for us to put our faith and trust only in him. And he will not lower that standard. Because if he did, it'd be bad. I mean, just look at our world today. People who are living without bounds, without law. It's scary. So God's character does not allow him to compromise. And the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But God himself provides the payment. And that's going to be part of the plan that leads us to Christmas and that ultimately leads us to the cross. And that's why you and I can trust God. His character and his willingness to sacrifice his own son, man, it inspires us to trust him. Because he's got a standard and he has unchangeable character. But when the rubber meets the road, he himself provides the payment. So what about you? Are you ever tempted to doubt God's goodness? You know, when life gets hard and when things get tough. Are you tempted? Like Adam and Eve were tempted? Do you fall prey to the same temptation that they did? Does the enemy want to influence you to, to view God as restrictive and distant? Well, let the birth of our Savior remind you that nothing could be further from the truth. As we look toward Christmas, let's remember where it began. It began with a perfect, loving Father, forced to address a problem He did not cause. And you saw the way that God intended for it to be. Perfect closeness, intimacy, all that they needed right at their fingertips, and daily companionship with Him. 
But because man chose what he chose, God had to address it. Could it not? It began with a kind, intimate father who met daily with the children he provided for. When they chose not to trust him and disobey his command that was designed to protect them and to preserve their precious innocence. Isn't that what we want to do for our kids? We want to protect that innocence. And then when it's broken, it's painful for both parties. But his justice demanded a response. And as a preview of what he would do many years later, he himself lovingly provided the payment required to cover man's sin. So as we enter into this Christmas season, let's consider in a new light all that God has done for us. Let's consider a perfect Savior who is God's eternal solution to our desperate problem. Thanks be to God for his unimaginable gift. I've got a little bit of homework for you to do this Christmas season. I was trying to think of things that would be fun for you to do, but to kind of help us to focus on the real message of Christmas. First, I encourage you, before Christmas, pull up that Bible, turn to Luke 2, and read the Christmas story. I'd encourage you to do that every week leading up to Christmas with your family, to keep it front and center. You know, when you're drawn toward other activities or drawn to focus on Santa, let's focus on Jesus. Secondly, I'd encourage you to watch The Nativity if you haven't heard of that movie. It's extremely well done. It really pays a lot of attention to the historical context. So, you would, so you'll know what it was like for Mary and Joseph during that experience, becoming Jesus' parents. And then thirdly, I'd encourage you to plan an act of service for someone outside your family before Christmas. So this morning we actually had a really special opportunity to... Um, bless a Romanian family, and in just a few moments we're going to call Connie up here, commission her, she goes to Romania on her mission trip, so we had a Romanian family show up at the church in need of assistance, and um, Hal was able to provide them some gas money, and Connie and I hosted them in the nursery, and Gracie helped out too, went and got some diapers and some formula, so, and that was a real blessing, it's like God brought to our doorstep this morning a chance to be a blessing and to focus on the reason for the season, which is that Jesus Christ came and that God gave his only son to live on this earth and then eventually to die on a cross for us. So I would encourage you to do that. Read the Christmas story. Watch the nativity. Find it on, you know, Netflix or whatever. And then plan an active service for someone outside your family before Christmas. Because as we've seen today, Christmas began a long time ago. And it began as God's intended solution to a problem that he didn't cause, but that we did. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for this day and uh, this chance to be here with my brothers and sisters, and uh, may we be encouraged to remember that Jesus, you are the reason for the season, and that it began with a sad decision by us, by humans, to not trust you, and even though you've done nothing to earn their mistrust, God, we're so susceptible to evil. We're so susceptible to being influenced, to depend on ourselves and to make independent choices that, and then we end up with really sad consequences. So God, as we enter into this Christmas season, I pray, I pray two things. I pray that we'll keep you as the focus, Jesus, and I pray that we'll allow you to inspire us to not just focus on you, but to focus on others that are outside of our um, families so that we can be a blessing this Christmas season. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.